ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in the Go Green by Mira podcast, a podcast by Hemp Tech Malaysia, where we discuss on the potential and challenges for hemp in Malaysia with experts from different industries. You are with me, your host, Anne Osman and Eric. And today we have two very esteemed guests, Professor Dr. Vigna Singham, an expert in drug-related research and treatment as well as medication. He is the appointed chairman of the Malaysian Society of Awareness, MASA, and currently the director for drug research, behavioral and intervention research. Our second guest is Mr. Harish Kumar, an author, activist and the co-founder of the Malaysian Society of Awareness. Welcome on this session, uh, Professor Dr. Vigna, as well as Mr. Harish Kumar. Thank you so much for being on this session today. Right. Thank you, Anne, for the kind introduction. You're welcome. So moving on to our first question. Let's just get an introduction from both our guests. Maybe you can just give us a bit of an introduction about yourself, your background, as well as some experience. Perhaps we can start off with Harish. Yes, thank you, Eric. Well, basically, my background in the university, it was for maritime technology. As I was a student, I was very interested in uh, psychology and how the mind works, you know, especially when it comes to mental health, like depression and so on. In, at that point of time, I began you know, exploring the possibilities of how mental health issues and that was when I really got learning more about cannabis. I was exposed to the, the knowledge of using psychedelic for treating medical health issues by people from all over the world. That is how people who have converse with the uh, United States who has PTSD, they usually use cannabis to treat them a lot of problems. They are facing can be help with cannabis. That's basically how I got started with the NGO and the movement. And the book that I've written is actually who use cannabis. That's basically a bit of So, Dr. Vigna, your background, I see, is a lot related to drug research as well in uh, University Science Malaysia. So, could you give us a bit more, you know, an introduction about yourself, what your research is about, your research interests perhaps, and, you know, your role in MASA as the chairman of MASA? Right. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, as introduced by Anne earlier, I am at the Center for Drug Research, currently the director at the Center for Drug Research, as well as chairman, elected chairman at MASA. I've been working with, with drug users or in the field of addictions for slightly more than 20 years now, working even all my tertiary degrees in behavior, in addictions and behavior, behavior of drug users in particular, has been my interest in my career, working with drug users, trying to understand the behavioral issues. And if you work in the area of addictions or working with the area with, with drug users, one cannot work alone, but have to work with the, the medical people, the chemists, the neuroscience people, because it's a whole range of things that we need to understand in order to help people with their substance use problems. I've done a bit of research with uh, heroin users, with amphetamine users, and also a large part of the last 10 years or so, I've been working a lot with Kratom users or Kratom users in the country, trying to understand how Kratom works and how it can be useful, in fact, you know. Uh, so this is, and also, you know, when we work with in addictions or drug use, 
you also have to work or to understand the other infectious diseases that come into play, uh, for example, HIV AIDS. So looking at, we understand behaviors, we're also looking at risk behaviors of drug users and trying to help people who use drugs manage this risk and also undergo and get them more into treatment programs. A group of us in Malaysia have started a movement or advocacy movement to advocate with the government. The Malaysian drug policy needs to move towards a more health-based approach rather than criminal justice approach. I think I'll talk about it as we go along in the interview. Based on your research, right, you say you've dealt a lot with the local behavioral drug users and also with the chemists and neuroscientists on how the chemistry behind all this drug is related, right? So based on your experience, can you give us an overview of the drug abuse problem or drug addiction in Malaysia? What are some of the causes and what are the most common drugs that is currently like abused in Malaysia at this point? I think if you look at it uh, historically, Malaysia problem first started in this country. It was opium and, you know, to some extent it was legalized. And then in the 70s, I think the heroin problem started in Malaysia. So we had a huge problem with heroin for about 20, 30 years at least. And slowly towards the turn of the century, amphetamine type stimulants or what we call shabu ice became very popular. If you look at the national data, it is still commonly used. Uh, the most number of drug users arrested are for using amphetamine type stimulants or what we call ATS drugs. So uh, this is kind of like the main drugs being used now. Of course, heroin is still there. Recently, over the last year or two, we I'm beginning to see on the, in the field a slight increase in heroin use again among users who have started again with heroin. But amphetamine is the main drug used. Of course, there are a lot of other drugs. There is what we call a new class of drugs, which we call new psychoactive substances, NPS which is bought online over the dark net. That's very difficult to trace because it doesn't come through the conventional drug trafficking channels online and it's sold in very small amounts and the chemical structure keeps changing with this drug. So there is also this problem with NPS, which we don't understand very well at the moment. But if you just ask me, the main drugs are amphetamine-type stimulant, ATS, shabu, ice, and then you have heroin. And then, uh, of course, cannabis has been around for a long time, but that's a different issue. These are the main types of drugs currently being used in the country. Just to go in deeper a little bit more, Dr. Pigna, so you were mentioning that you work closely with the government, correct, with your researchers, and um, you're advocating for health-based research as opposed to, you know, what the current status quo where they you know, focus a lot on criminalizing justice. So in what way do you advocate for this health-based research that you work together with the government in terms of giving a solution with this uh, drug abuse happening in Malaysia? If you look at it again, it's not only Malaysia. The understanding, if you look at addictions per se or drug use, 50 years ago, the medical fraternity we did not understand much about drug use. So it was perceived or considered as a social problem, security problem, because they become violent, they become uh, people who use drugs, become a nuisance in society, they, they disrupt, they commit crimes and so on. So that was the kind of approach or that was the understanding at that time because the knowledge was simply not there. When you classify or define a problem this way, 
then the approach to managing this problem would be from a criminal justice perspective, which is punishing, you know, incarcerating people who use mm. drugs and so on. But now, over the last 20 years or so, we, we now have a better understanding of what addiction is all about. We know that continuous use of certain types of drugs does damage the brain. When the brain is damaged, if you continue to lock people up, that's not going to repair the brains. From a medical point of view, we understand the person who used drugs has got his brains affected or damaged, and we need to see how we can medically intervene to help repair or you know, manage that the problem in the brain. So that's where we come from a medical point of view to say now that it's pointless to put these people, incarcerate them. And you know, we've been doing that over the last 50, 60 years. And you see them, that the results are simply not there. People just you know go in and out through the criminal justice system and there's no solution to this. It's just only like temporarily putting them away. So now with this medical evidence, we're telling the government, come on, you've got to now start thinking of it in a different way. So. But the laws to treat or to handle or to manage the drug problem in the country is, is very old. You look at, for example, the Dangerous Drug Act is 1952. The Treatment and Rehabilitation is 1983. So the laws that are available for treating drug users is not adequate. And the laws are outdated in that sense. So this is where we are coming, a group of us from the medical or health side are saying, we got to relook at these laws. I mean, even if you look at the prison population right now in Malaysia, about 60% of our prison population are drug users. I'm not talking about drug traffickers. Uh, let's be very clear. I'm talking about just drug users. You know, uh, we, we say that our prisons are overcrowded, but 60% are drug users. We are still until today sending many people who use drugs to prison. If we take them out and put them in medical facilities or get the health people to handle or to manage them and treat them, I think we, we can get far better results. Interesting. That's a really good way to see it. I, mean, I agree with you. The solution, the method that's taken is totally outdated. Harish, you've been working a lot with mental health, right? Your organization is also advocating a lot about how drug abuse should actually be considered as mental health problem instead of a crime. So can you tell us more about your experience dealing with people who have joined your organization or have approached you with their problems and yeah what is the kind of mental health treatment that they actually seek from MASA basically the people who contact MASA they have a variety of different illnesses some with epilepsy some with cancer many different illnesses and of course mental health is one of them as an organization as an NGO at the moment we do not have any medicine or treatment that without offer them besides giving them advice or a direction of where they can go. If we are talking about people from countries like Thailand, India, the United States uh, and many other countries who have legalized cannabis, there's more and more people who are beginning to use cannabis as a treatment for depression, anxiety and many different types of mental health issues, especially PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder which is something that is very difficult to be treated by any common medicine in the hospitals today. So if you speak to these people, you know, they can explain to you. And of course, for example, I can give here is the military veteran in the United States who suffered with post-traumatic stress disorder. When he got back after the war, he wasn't able to sleep every night thinking about the people that he saw during the war who died. And he gave him a hard time and, you know, he was thinking about suicide. Suicide is a big issue in the military because most of the veterans who come back from war, they decide to kill themselves from having post-traumatic 
disorder. So this was a big issue in the United States, and you know he he began using cannabis from recommendation from his friend. You have to understand that cannabis is not it's considered a dangerous drug. Schedule one, even in Malaysia, you could be sentenced to death for having cannabis more than 200 grams. So of course, it was not the first option for people who have mental health issues to use. When it comes to a very drastic point when you have no other option you basically have to do whatever it takes to try to treat yourself so this is what drove these people to start using cannabis and in malaysia i will see many people who are trying to get access to it but unfortunately especially after the covid 19 outbreak there's no way they could access this medicine now to dr vikna a lot of your research is surrounding kratom or you know popular within the malay community ketum in malaysia Does the cannabis and kratom have a relationship in essence or similar therapeutic properties from your research? Natural drugs like kratom and cannabis fall in the same category as ketamine, heroin, and amphetamines in terms of harmful potential. To understand this, I don't think we can equate cannabis and kratom and put them in the same basket because they have different effects. For example, kratom provides or gives a stimulant and opioid like effect whereas cannabis is also got a few types of effect it's a depressant it can be a stimulant or hallucinogen it also has hallucinogenic effects at larger doses or higher much higher doses the types of drugs both these drugs or these plants are different i wouldn't call them drugs but both these plants are different my research has focused a lot on Kratom use, you know, kratom or kratom, which is used in Thailand, uh, has been used in the country and also in south of Thailand for more than hundred years. Some of the earlier research dates back to 1930s by British researchers at Cambridge and so on. You know, looking at the effects of kratom. 50 years or 70 years ago, it was never a problem because it was just used in the traditional context. People in agriculture uh, used it after a hard day, laborious work. They would boil this and drink it like having a cup of tea after work, and it tends to relax them and so on. But now it's widely being misused. I think I have to be very clear that the research that we are doing is towards developing it as a medication. We do not advocate its recreational use because I think the use of kratom among, especially among the younger population. And uh, recreational uses. It is even now, you know, it's widely used even in KL. So to me, it has some medicinal properties, which is what we are investigating or working towards. Mm-hmm. But children going to school shouldn't be drinking kratom in the morning and going to school. That's something that we don't agree. Or using it for recreational purposes. Cannabis is different. We have seen, like for example, how kratom can be very useful is. A heroin user who's undergoing withdrawal drinks a glass of kratom juice, and immediately his heroin withdrawal is suppressed. And this has been very effective. Last year, we published the first human clinical trial among kratom users to measure pain, and we found it to also be useful in managing pain. So, of course, cannabis has also shown to manage pain, but they're very they're different class of drugs. They're not comparable directly. However, as you mentioned, you don't classify both cannabis and kratom as drugs, but more as plants. Maybe you'd like to share a bit more about your research on this on kratom, as you mentioned, your medical research as alternative for heroin withdrawal. I think cannabis, like what Harish said earlier, the active compound THC and so on, is still a Schedule One drug. It comes under the single UN single conventions, and there has been a big debate now in the UN, which I think it's they are opening up to relaxing some of it, 
but it is still very much being debated at the UN. And Malaysia generally tends to follow what the United Nations consensus are. With your question again was with Katom and to manage opioid withdrawal. If something that we are working, I have personally seen active heroin users who are experiencing withdrawal drink Katom and it's suppressed very nicely. My colleagues at the lab have done this research with animal research, with animals and found it to be effective as well. You know, in any human studies, we need to do clinical trials. That's the gold standard to get the, the data that we need. So that's something that we want to start this year. Uh, is to do a human clinical trial to bring in heroin users and measure and give them Kratom in the clinics and to measure this objectively. But anecdotally, looking at them in the field for years, I've seen that it's effective. You talk to them, some people have quit heroin and have started using Kratom because they find it to be very effective. So these are all anecdotal evidence among humans. Animal work has been done to some extent, but the human clinical trial is something that we are hoping to start this year. Dr. Vigna, to actually build on that, right, you said that currently um, heroin, amphetamine, shabu, ice and all these are actually the most commonly used drugs. And you also mentioned that now ketone use is also increasing in even cities like KL and things like that. Sometimes the assumption that these soft drugs like ketone and cannabis is actually a gateway drug. Because sometimes this ketum and all that is actually mixed with other substances that, you know, have its demand and so on. So can you explain a bit more on, you say you want to move into a human clinical trial. So is part of your methodology an assumption that these drugs are also a gateway drug? Or is it an assumption that it's actually helping the problem? So yeah, can you tell us more on that? When we talk of gateway drug, it's a theory that was came about about 30-40 years ago, if I'm not mistaken that talks about it's like a stepping stone you know you start with something you're going to move to something and i think the assumption out there is cannabis is a gateway drug but if you look at the studies or the the national institute of drug abuse us this theory of cannabis being a gateway drug was actually largely done in with animals so they tried to show with in animal research with rodents that you know their brains were affected so on but with, with humans, this idea has not been proven. In fact, it was harder to show with humans. And there's no data among humans to show that marijuana is actually a gateway drug to other harder drugs. Because then there's also research to show alcohol and nicotine also prime the brain to a certain extent and can be considered also as gateway drug. So with marijuana, with uh, humans, it's the evidence is not there. So all the experiments done was with rodents to prove this theory. But again, when you when you look at with humans, it's also important to understand other biological mechanisms and the social environment that people live in. So the gateway drug hypothesis is that people are more vulnerable to drug taking is from marijuana and all has to be looked at from other social environment or socio-environment. Everyone comes from a different social environment. You've got to understand that in a more complete way. That's with cannabis. With Katum, I think it's the other way around. I've seen a lot of heroin users who have come in a way like, you know, working back in reverse, coming back to Katum, which is a substance that is classified under Poisons, Poisons Act compared to heroin, which is classified under dangerous drug. That was what used to happen. But now we also have 
in the bigger cities, a lot of people who have never used any drugs have started using ketom or started consuming ketom. It's too early to say or we just do not have the evidence whether people who use ketom would go on to use other harder substances. It, I'm not certain about that. It's like they chew the leaves. In Thailand, but in Malaysia, we sold as a juice. It looks more like sugarcane juice. And people consume this very bitter decoction of juice. So, is it been consumed like alcohol? I don't know. I'm not sure whether this would be the gateway to even harder drugs. Or it's helping them manage from getting into harder drugs. I think the further research that you're doing will actually be able to enlighten us more on this once you actually start dealing with humans. And I'm sure you have questionnaires. And maybe we can go in deeper into this further in the future. You say that a lot of heroin users coming out of redrawal, they go into Katum. And so maybe that might be a hypothesis as well. Maybe heroin users are now going into Katum instead because of certain conditions like Harish mentioned just now that they are not able to get their supply or whatever it is. We can also make that assumption that they are going to Katum as an alternative. And also a lot of research goes around saying that drugs users actually are looking for the least dangerous method, the least dangerous way of consumption. I'm sure they themselves are also worried about their health. And this is also a reason that a lot of countries like, let's just say, Canada and the US are telling themselves, you know, why don't we actually legalize this market so we can ensure that people consuming it, you know, the product which has no pesticides in it, that is quality controlled, that is graded, and for medical users, they have different types. So you also have written a research paper in the Australian Economic Review on the response to illicit drug problem. And you talked about the supply and demand analysis of it. Can you tell us more about that? And, you know, tell us about whether the legal cannabis trade in these other countries has actually successfully deterred the illicit drug trade. And has it actually provided a benefit for drug users and you know possibly maybe if you have information on this like dive deeper into how countries such as Canada have benefited from tax revenue which they are able to direct to maybe medical research and drug rehabilitation so yeah can you just talk about that i'm not a real expert on this but i'll try to talk a bit i think the evidence of legalization from america and canada is not well understood yet because it's still reason. The legalization has just been a few years old. So if one were to look at impact of legalizing something, you have to wait for many years before you see its effects or the impact of it. So that is why I think we do not have very solid data or research to actually uh, really understand the impact of it. So I think in when you're legalizing something, you have to look at the benefits of not only from an economic point of view, but you have to also understand the health point of view. For example, you know, for us to understand it easily, I think if you look at cigarettes, tobacco, it's something that the government, while they collect taxes on it, they keep increasing the revenue of the state. They also have to look at what are the health issues. You can collect more tax, but are you going to be spending more money treating smokers at a later age? So this is something, a cost-benefit or risk-benefit analysis that the state has to do or various governments will have to do to understand when they want to legalize a particular substance. It's a bit complex in that sense. You know? so, of course, the traditional way of uh, demand supply drugs is, I mean, if you reduce the demand, supply would automatically reduce as well. 
but now with cannabis there is evidence that it works for medicinal purposes certain countries have legalized for recreational purpose because they want to control its use rather than at the same time the government is able to collect some tax revenues from it rather than it being in the illegal market and the government does not get anything they feel that by legalizing it they can control and manage the problem more effectively they have better products out there safer products so that they you know with from pesticides poisons and so on so you won't get poisoning issues and so on so that's legalizing is a different issue and then you know medical cannabis is a different issue altogether so certain countries have not legalized but they have allowed medical uh, cannabis to take place in the country so it's something for the country to think about and i think this is where we come in where we try to do research and provide the government with the relevant evidence so that when the decision is made or when decisions are made it's based on evidence not on hearsay or sentiments or you know emotions that's how i think research can help advance decision making thank you dr vikna it's really appreciate having professionals and experts as yourself who are looking to this and actually doing proper research in terms of the legalization of cannabis as we can see like neighboring countries like thailand has already taking baby steps i would say to legalizing cultivating cannabis solely taking baby steps to legalizing and right now is medicinal and we'll see eventually recreational now moving on to harish you know because you were advocating about cannabis as a medical alternative to treat PTSD and mental problems and we were hoping to get your opinion and explain the meaning of decriminalization of drugs and the logic behind decriminalization and the impacts to society based on previous implementations of regulations so basically when you say decriminalization of drug i think the main objective in masa since 2015 personally i think i've seen many families and individuals who wasted their life away just because they were in prison and being tracked down by the tracker force agency to test their urine and all of this so this is something that i think should be discouraged it should be stopped in malaysia because uh, treating people who use drugs as criminals is a totally wrong thing to do uh, people who use drugs have a tendency to be addicted to something just like coffee there is people who love to drink coffee in the morning if they don't drink their coffee in the morning they can't carry out their daily tasks as per normal so addiction itself is actually a health issue and that is how the government and the drug enforcement agencies should look at it that is the main and most important step the malaysia took it should take following you know countries like portugal and everyone giving more compassion and love towards person who's going to uh, mental health issues and everything to help them defeat the purpose of being addicted defeat the need of being addicted to dangerous drugs i'm not suggesting cannabis as a dangerous drug because cannabis itself is as a very normal very commonly used drug all over the world even though it's illegal and it doesn't have as much of a dangerous effects as per other drugs like heroin cocaine and everything else just to give a bit of background on this we have to be clear that decriminalization is not legalization they are two different things so when we decriminalize and i think this is some of the things that we have been working with the government as well or trying to nudge the government to move towards decriminalization legalization is is a big word still in malaysia so we think decriminalizing uh, drug use is something that we want to move and this is going back to what i had said earlier 60% of the prison population 
is there for using drugs. Basically, they were using drugs. They were caught, urine tested positive, go through the criminal justice system and sent to prison for three months, six months, a year and so on. So really doesn't serve a purpose. So when we talk of decriminalization, we are now telling or advocating that you have caught them, but please don't send them to prison. Decriminalize the drugs and send them for treatment. So uh, when we say legalizing means you're allowed to, you know, legalizing cannabis, people can walk on the streets and smoke cannabis. That's legalizing. So we are not advocating for that, but decriminalizing certain substances. Your question was on decriminalizing cannabis for certain illness. Recently, Malaysia has said that they won't budge from cannabis still is a dangerous drug and you know they won't decriminalize or legalize it i'm not sure what term they use but we on the ground we have seen many patients who are suffering and who say that they benefit from using this cannabis as for medicinal purpose so maybe the government can if you're not going to remove at least by individual patients have a system where you know the health doctors should be able to assess individual patients who are sick especially terminal illness and the only help we can do is if they are comfortable and they say that cannabis is helping them relieve some of the pain you know there should be a panel of doctors that should be able to certify and say, okay, for this patient, I think we can allow some amount of cannabis to use, to be used for him to manage his pain or illness. Those are little steps that Malaysia can take. And I think would go a long way in trying to help these patients, especially those who have terminal illness. Maybe you can talk more on the difference of hemp and marijuana per se, because a lot of other countries, like perhaps... uh, the United States, they have recognized that hemp is also under the cannabis plant category. It has other benefits due to its CBD content. So can you tell us more on the difference of hemp from the cannabis plant? Basically, hemp in the law in Malaysia and around the world is written by using the genus name, cannabis sativa. So whatever the, you know, hemp is basically... If you look at the classification in the United States, it states that all plants from the cannabis sativa genus, which contains less than 0.3% of THC, is considered hemp, which means even if the strains that they grow uh, produces flower that is very high in TBD, but still has less THC, which is less than 0.3% of THC, is considered hemp. But originally, the name hemp came from India, which is the Indian hemp plant that grows very similarly like enough. It grows very tall and it, the fibers are used to make clothes and many other products. The name hemp is used differently in the United States than it is used in India. So that's the first thing we need to understand. In the sense of medical use, I think CBD and DAC both has a different uses for different types of illnesses. But when it comes to certain illnesses like for example uh, the Dravet syndrome. Dravet syndrome is, is a form of severe epilepsy. It is found that CBD can really help with that. But at the same time, we are not saying that CBD alone should be isolated and used as same way as most pharmaceutical products are used. It should be in a full spectrum form because most scientists who are studying cannabis right now, they call this the entourage effect of the, each compound that is found in the cannabis plant like CBG, CBN, CBD, TAC, TACV, every single thing has its own role in upholding the health of a human body because we have the endocannabinoid system which interacts with it. 
to me personally, I don't think there's any difference between hemp and cannabis. It's the same and plant, but of course, there's many different strains, many different species for say. Uh, that means different types of flower potency of the flowers, and even some strains which are only used for fiber or the seeds or to get oil. Can hemp cigarettes be considered as something that people who need medical treatment like CBD can they smoke hemp cigarettes as an alternative? Is it possible? Hemp cigarettes is definitely a better alternative to tobacco. That's what I could say. But when you say hemp cigarettes, as in the flowers, which has high CBD, which is potent in CBD, then yes, I would say if the doctor sees that it's fit to treat a certain disease, then yes, it could be used uh, as a medical. Dr. Vigna, maybe you can dive deeper into the medical perspective from this. Can you tell us more about hemp? And whether it's considered as a drug because of its low THC content based on our current drug regulations. And how is hemp different from marijuana? Because we understand that hemp and marijuana are both different parts, like Harish was mentioning. Some has THC, some has CBD. So from a medical perspective, can you dive deeper into this? I'm not a real expert in this to give you a very detailed account of it. But our law just specifies, if I'm not mistaken, again, THC. Again, remember, I was saying the laws are very old. So this all this new classification and new research with cannabis and hemp has very recently come about over the last, say, 10 years or so. Even the UN, if you look at it, what they're looking at, the various compounds from cannabis, they're still debating which should be in Schedule 1, which should be in Schedule 2, and so on. So it is kind of complex as such. It's medical use. There are certain countries who believe in it, certain countries who are still looking into it, and so on. But the evidence from what we see on the ground is anecdotally there are certain people who have benefited from it. And like I said earlier, you know, those who have, who are suffering with pain, terminally ill patients who think if this is useful or cannabis is helping them, then, you know, I think the government should assist or, you know, have a panel to actually assess these patients, evaluate them and then see if it's really helping them. Why not just give them, you know, it's really no harm in allowing them to use. And I think this is one of the things in MASA that we are trying to do is to engage with other doctors as well from other local universities is to conduct clinical trials in Malaysia to study with depression and so on. Then once we have this evidence, I think we'll be in a better position to advise the government or advocate to the government the use of cannabis for these medicinal purposes. This is where we're coming. I think Harish is uh, very actively engaging with other doctors from UPM and US to see how clinical trials can be done. But again, funding is an issue. Conducting clinical trials are an expensive affair. So we are seeing, in fact, MASA has even written to the government for asking for assistance, seeing whether we can get support to conduct these studies. So Dr. Bigna, talking about clinical trials, let's just say we have organizations or people in the medical interested to bring in certain CBD products or be the middle party to actually allow CBD products to be used by the people, is it possible for them to actually carry out clinical trials? Because we are aware that NPRA does have their own sort of clinical trial guideline. So let's just say if a company or if an organization is interested to carry out this clinical trial, how would they go about it? I think NPRA definitely has its criteria and rules. For example, uh, we need to have a pharmacist with license, a license on board these trials. 
and of course medical personnel and so on but the way the most important thing in conducting this clinical trials is to get the ethical approval of course you comply with all the npra rules and regulation with regards to the product these companies want to bring in or have brought in once uh, you've got that approval then you need to get your ethical approval to conduct the clinical trial if you're going to conduct your clinical trial in any ministry of health or private hospitals then you would need an ethical approval from the ministry of health if we are going to conduct it in any university settings universities have our own ethical committees which means we don't have to go and get ministry of health approval the university ethical committee would then uh, review the proposal or the study protocol and then give us the approval so once you have your ethical approval then you can start your clinical trial here so it is possible there are ways to do it and pra uh, for example to do research with cannabis products they allow they allow that is just that we have to comply with all the rules that they have set out actually doing research in a university is it easier as compared to going through the other clinical trials based on your view i wouldn't say it's easier but i would say getting the approval may be faster because ministry of health of course it's a bigger setup and they they may take a bit longer to process your ethical application whereas universities we sit more often because one of the main business of university besides teaching is doing research so the focus is research so the ethical committees kind of sit more often so in terms of speed you might get it faster than going through the ministry of health but in terms of easier or not it's it's the same actually it's i think both committees are made up of professionals who would look at the scientific merit and all the ethical issues has to be complied with before they allow you to conduct the trial because once you you know you're dealing with humans it's very important for us to comply with all ethical issues and ethical standards have to be met when we conduct trials with humans thank you dr vikna that actually gives us a very deep insight into how we need to go about the research process. process because the government does mention a lot in the news that more research should be done i'm sure a lot of us who are keen on it or a lot of companies that are very keen on actually going into this industry are very unclear about the guidelines that they need to go about and i think your clarification really be helpful to some people who are interested in going into these fields let's just go into the way forward how we actually looking forward into perhaps cannabis and maybe hemp in malaysia What is the approach of MASA to address medical practitioners and patients seeking cannabis-related treatment? But since you said more research needs to be done on this, we need to get a more clear perspective. So how can these patients or medical practitioners that are actually interested to go into this field approach MASA and go deeper into this research? How can you guys play your role? if people are interested i mean medical practitioners and patients who are interested to be involved in research of cannabis they could definitely contact us on our website or by email masasociety.com we can definitely channel them to the right path in order to get the research done because for masa our main concern is definitely to get research going on so that we can prove to the government and the people that cannabis itself is actually safer than coffee if it's possible for me to say and is able to treat many different diseases if medical practitioners who are interested in research they can contact us but if you are talking about getting treatment here in Malaysia you know at the moment there's no way because unless you're talking about illegal ways then yeah there's many ways but legally there's no ways to provide a proper treatment which effective cannabis products because the most 
most of the products that we get in the illegal market is not certified it's not there's no regulations on how they produce it so we got no idea what is the chemical content and we got no idea how it would affect patients for example like cancer there's many research done in like Israel by professor Dedi Mieri who studied over 500 different strains of cannabis he found that each strain they have different types of chemical compound mixtures which can actually affect different types of cancer for example he has found one particular strain that can kill colon cancer cells and when you say kills it means it not only shrinks the tumors but it kills the cancer cells itself and also he found another strain that can kill prostate cancer so you see cancer itself is very complex and there's many types of cancer so if we can't just say that if you take cannabis you immediately can treat cancer like every type of cancer so we have to understand that cannabis itself is something that needs to be researched even more deeply before we can actually give treatment to patients properly so that's what the thailand and many other countries are doing now besides opening up tac you know they have three types of products at the moment one to one ratios tac and cbd high cbd concentration and high tac concentration is the commonly used concentrations in research and also for medical treatment but that is not the final stage that is just the beginning and much more that needs to be done in order for us to be able to treat patients properly considering that all this research needs to be done i'm sure msa has their goals and where they tend to play their role in malaysia especially in this research and to coordinate the different perhaps medical practitioners because we notice in a lot of other countries how they actually get cannabis research on the ground is they have a sort of cannabis authority or something like that this masa intend to play their role in malaysia in something like that can you maybe perhaps tell us what is your actual goal for the next 2 years Masa's goal in coming 2 to 5 years from now is to become the center for psychedelic plant research and also we are because we are dealing with a plant that has has to do a lot with human rights we are also advocating for human rights but our main goal is to be a center for psychedelic plant research so starting with cannabis and we may move forward to other plants like for example ayahuasca maybe even um, salvia and many more because the main objective of masa is to figure out how psychedelic plants is able to help in mental health issues and maybe many other different types of health issues Thank you so much Harish. I am sure Eric can agree with me that this session has been very insightful and it's such an honor to be able to have this discussion with Dr. Vikna and Harish and I'm sure our audience out there are able to get a better understanding on the current research done at Masa in relation to medical cannabis, mental health and behavioral interventions. Thank you so much Dr. Vikna and Harish and we look forward to more updates on your research and initiatives by the Malaysian Society of Awareness. Thank you to our audience for listening into our session. We here at the Malaysia Hemtech Research invites more experts from various fields and industries to dive in their research and and studies and the potential of hemp here in Malaysia and our goal to move forward in this space in the future. So stay tuned to more brilliant talks and discussions right here on the Go Green by Mira podcast. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.